0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 7, Episode 23. Speech to the National Space Society, January 1989. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek... Larry Nemechek Well, welcome back Star Trek fans Hey, all you Star Trek historians You canonistas Yes, I say that lovingly Look, you know, all you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, we have an excellent show today. We're going to dip into the science well a little bit today, some current events, uh, some famous Vulcans you may know. (laughs) Look, as always, we've got the document of the week right there on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. So give that a look. Here's an audio sample just to whet your appetite, but hang around, be right back, and I'll be here with today's very special guest. does this human creature belong in space my artist's instincts tell me that to believe otherwise is to suggest that we should have remained a three-foot anthropoid confined to the warm savannas of central africa which at this time seems to be the best guess about our beginnings but whether you believe that was the human beginning or you prefer the story that god kicked our ass out of the garden of eden for playing with ourselves Either way, our ancestors went on from there to prove over and over again, all through our humanoid existence, that we are a superbly adaptable, voyaging, exploring, growing creature. Hey, Trecophiles, That is so reassuring. That is pure Gene Roddenberry. It's so good to hear some reassuring words like that in times like these. This was a speech he gave to the National Space Society organization, which is uh, very much about bringing the reality of space to the public. Uh, one of the major space organizations is still with us, and um, I tell you what, one of the major faces in Star Trek that is very much still with us, because you know, those Vulcans, they're long-lived. Hey, listen, he's a friend of ours. Um, you love him on, this, on the circuit, and best of all, he combines this world of art and science that uh, Gene's talking about. So I am so glad to welcome to The Trek Files, Mr. Tim Russ himself. Tim, it's so great to see you and, and have you along with us today. Good to see you, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, listen, I'm, I'm betraying a little personal nod here because I remember uh, meeting you when Voyager got started, but also it was kind of fun to find out that you were an amateur astronomer, you were a sidewalk astronomer, you loved to go do those displays, and I still very fondly remember uh, a couple of times when you had our son out and his friends out, out, out north of L.A. at the big uh, sites where you guys would go sidewalk stargazing. So um, I thought you'd be perfect to talk about this, much less the fact that you've had a little, uh, a little rendezvous with NASA here yourself that we can talk yes. about that was in the news that was very cool. But look at our document this week. This is, this is so perennial Gene Roddenberry, isn't it? And kind of one of the things <laughs> that um, maybe we should make it clear. Have you been a Star Trek fan yourself for very long, Tim?
1: well i you know uh, as i have talked about before i you know when i was growing up uh, they uh, we only had three channels on television so um they played rerun after rerun of a number of shows um everything from Gilligan's Island to i love lucy and that included star trek as well so um we ended up we watched these shows constantly they were always on uh, the twilight zone and uh, star trek uh, that, that, that. it was so i know all of the episodes for all of those shows Uh, including Star Trek. So uh, the familiarity is definitely there.
0: Yeah, and what I mean is you had your guest spots before you played Tuvok on Voyager. Oh,
1: yes, absolutely. I mean, those were, you know, I was just, I booked those gigs, you know, just by going out and reading for them. um, And over a period of number of years uh, prior to Voyager, I want to say at least seven uh, years of of going in to read for the parts and the roles, and eventually booking them and booking mm-hmm. another one and another one. So all of that was sort of a buildup to, uh, in a way, to Voyager. Because uh, yeah, when I started out, when I started out, Voyager wasn't even a concept at that time.
0: Oh right, right, right. And some and the one off uh, bits you played the Klingon once, a couple of uh, a terrorist ones. Yeah, yeah once. The, other, the other episodes.
1: Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: But when you got to Tuvok, I guess my main point here is no one had to coach you on what a Vulcan was.
1: No no because um by that time I was very familiar with um that particular character and the culture of that character so you know nobody needed to tell me what it, what they were like or what he was like and and it was very it was a you know to create an amalgam of of, of several of the Vulcan characters that may have been portrayed was probably uh, the way that I approached it at the time
0: yeah being a full-blood Vulcan. But a full-blood Vulcan would appreciate, I think, and you yourself again as an act as a musician we should also say. This whole yeah. thing that Gene's talking here about the combination of art and science and just appealing to the common man and and you know what's the attitude about going into space and why? So what I mean this is, you know, it's not a long address here, it's four pages. What mm-hmm. did you what did where did your mind take you as you read this cuz this is classic Gene, don't you think?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean he talks about, you know, Our destiny um, as the human race, as a species, is is more than likely going to be to leave this planet and to colonize other worlds, whether they are in our solar system or beyond our solar system. And as Gene mentions, yes, we don't have the technology to travel to the stars at present, Um, but that doesn't mean we couldn't because Columbus couldn't go to the moon on wind power either. So as as our technology you know, and our physics and our knowledge and our ability uh abilities expand um we may unlock these doors that allow us to be able to do all kinds of things in the future and they'll look back at us and say well you know they they couldn't travel to the stars based on the current level of physics they have today Uh, but at the very least we'll be we'll be colonizing other worlds we'll be colonizing off planet and um, not only will we be doing that you know physically just going there but we'll be re-engineering ourselves as as a species in order to survive in different uh, climates different atmospheres different uh, gravity gravitational pressures uh, different uh, worlds we're going to be doing that and people who are born in those planets will not be able to come back to earth you know because they will be acclimated to that world that's going to happen and as a as a factor of pre- pre- preserving our species because we we are still at the mercy to some degree of any potential c- uh, catastrophic event whether it's our own or perhaps an yeah. asteroid strike Um, That could wipe us out. So we need to be we need to be flexible. We need to be able to move um, and colonize other worlds. It's not the easiest thing to do by any stretch. It will take a long time because we're not acclimated to space.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and and I just want to we're on this topic. It's good because I hear pushback from a lot of people when we talk about climate change and and saving the Earth. A lot of people. I think it the idea that the that the pull and the attraction and the and the futurism of space and space exploration and colonizing the system, people see that as some people's like escape from responsibility for taking care of the earth. That that phrase about, hey, there is no planet B. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I don't see that. I mean, what do you think? I don't see that as a as a as a cop out for taking care of the earth. We do need to obviously protect our our mother world here. But the other oh. is going to be inevitable, too. It's not a, it shouldn't be an either or situation.
1: Oh, no, no, no. We, I think our first priority is going to have to be, you know, uh, the lifeboat that we're on now, um, given the fact that, number one, it's a very rare lifeboat. Um, yeah. I mean, recent estimates by astrophysicists about the number of possible intelligent species out there in our own galaxy, which is enormous, is not that many. Um, there are other Earth-like worlds out there, but we're nowhere near them. So we can't just hop yeah. off and you know, and go you know jump off, jump ship if something goes wrong with this one. We need this lifeboat to be intact. We need it to be. We need the resources to be available. We need to be able to feed and house and clothe the population of the planet as it expands and grows as it is now. So the the Earth's resources, the Earth's climate, the Earth's um, environment needs to be preserved and focused on, and we will be using advanced technology for that as well. Yeah. Um, but so all of that will happen hand in hand because the process of expanding and colonizing other worlds will still take some time. So uh, we're, we're, you know, the, the priority will be the planet Earth. And I think the secondarily we will be looking at expanding uh, the species.
0: Yeah. So it's it seems to me that's a that's a false, uh, a false choice there. We should be doing we should be doing both. But this. You have to, but, you yeah. Have to. Yeah. But this uh, NSS speech that's so pure gene because he's talking about being at JPL. When they're landing a lander on on Mars, and the scientists being um, disappointed that they they hadn't found any immediate life at the moment, yes. and him yes. and him, this is again so Roddenberry. S like oh, thank goodness, there's no life there that we're going to be you know kicking off the planet like like <laughs> like Imperials kicking out the Indians, you know, kind of a thing, like you know the imperialist.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um. Well, there is also the factor of you know potential contamination right. and things like that. We don't know. You know, they haven't actually found definite uh, proof of, of uh, any life that might have existed on Mars. Um, I think, there's, you know, if, if it exists, it probably is underground or it might be locked in the ice. It might like be in- microbial
0: or something. Microbial, yeah. I'm
1: yeah. not going to find anything else there. But, but um, and I think that we'll I think they will do fine in terms of, of you know, if we were to. If we were to find or to to uh, to contact uh, alien life somewhere out there in the in the universe, and it could happen, it could happen any day, uh, that we have absolute proof that there's communication with an intelligent species, I wouldn't worry too much about it at the, at present. You know, I I, I don't think that's going to be a, a a threat or a factor for us. And neither us for them at this point so
0: yeah but it's again though the this you know gene's the motion picture line the human adventure is just beginning he gets back into his thing about we're just a we're an infant species but this this cosmic kind of perspective he says is you know like uh, what if what if we had these immense distances between potential life just so that we make sure we're mature enough to handle it like by the time we get to the tech level to, to go to war, to have warp drive and cross stellar distances means that we've matured that enough to get there. That's, uh, I yeah.
1: And that's why I think the threat of uh, even Hawking talked about, you know, why should we be maybe we shouldn't be listening or trying to send messages out there because we couldn't be inviting trouble from a, su- a superior race um, because he compared it to the human race. You know the superior, the race with the the, the uh, culture with the superior technology, all of these dominated and colonized the inferior, um, technologically cultural, uh, race. And I, I don't I don't see that happening. I think once you reach a certain point um, uh, of intelligence and enlightenment, that it's no longer a priority. We we are primitive. <laughs> we are we are still beating each other up. We are still fighting. We are still killing. That's what we are. So we haven't reached that level. We're not even anywhere close to that level. Right. We're not even. A class one civilization yet so by the definition of those terms so we have a long way to go by the time we get to class two or three I, we, there's no getting around the fact that we will have advanced beyond a certain point we will have to we will be mm-hmm. forced in order to survive we will have to figure out a way to live together on this planet harmoniously in some way shape or form and to put our people in the species as a priority rather than uh, political power, or greed, or money, or whatever it might be—those things are going to go by the wayside. They will have to go by the wayside, otherwise, we're going to have a very, pretty much a doomed, uh, you know, dystopian apocalypse here on the planet itself. Yeah, we're going to have to go beyond that. We're talking three or four hundred, maybe a thousand years, you know, before maybe ten thousand years before this uh, ever happens. And once we're able to get to the point of being a class two civilization or class one civilization, um to to colonize our inner solar system to to harness the power of our sun directly for energy mm-hmm. uh, um, to be able to travel uh from planet to planet or moon to moon uh much more quickly than we can now when we get to that point uh, we will have advanced considerably and that's going to be a ways off
0: so. yeah well it's it's you know the the optimism of the future is what's always attracted people to star trek apparent you know apart yeah. from yeah. every other franchise that's out there but um it, it, it always was kind of a moot point. People love the optimism, but Gene would say, well, it is it is a moot point because if we don't survive, we won't get that far. I mean, it, by the time we have got to that part, by definition, we will have oh, overcome yeah. all this.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. By the time we get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, barring our own, you know, getting out of our own way. Yeah. In order to allow that to happen.
0: Sure. <laughs> getting out of our own way. Uh, yeah that's why I, that's why I think having Star Trek back actively produced right now is in the times that we're in is but you know he gave this speech in 89 and yeah. apart from this little bit where he's talking about the uh, the the collected knowledge of the world is starting to double every so many years which was kind of an interesting uh, he's, he's using 1961 as a baseline and basically yeah. saying that every all human knowledge basically had uh, what, uh, seven years later, it had doubled in 68 yes. and then yes. 75. And so, uh, yeah, we're on a curve. But yes, we are. Yeah. But will it be enough? But we'll enough? It
1: will be, I think, because we're going, you know, what's going to accelerate that curve is going to be um, AI. Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence is going to advance our technology considerably. Um, once they have it uh, perfected, up and running and perfected, um, the power of those machines, uh, uh, being able to think and be able to process and be able to design and um and figure things out that's coming that's all down the line yeah you know the stuff that gene was talking about at the time look how far we've come since him yeah and now look where we are um and so it's going to go up exponentially in terms of the rate speed in which we're going to acquire knowledge about all kinds of areas like i said whether it's physics or anything else or engineering all that's going to accelerate uh, people being born right now are going to be you know um designing and, and uh, processing and programming things that we couldn't even dream
0: of well and just look what's happened since the dawn of the digital age and the you know personal computer much less the the, the univac right. and all that but back to what you've been doing lately um yeah. you know what are those threats that's that's uh, existential External to the Earth is something like an asteroid. We we worry about that and that kind of, I mean there it's there's a fun part of just tracking and on the hunt, but also the 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 reality that why don't you tell why don't you tell us about um, how you and asteroids and NASA all came together?
1: Well, I worked on a project under um, what's called citizen science. It's part of the Unistellar program. Unistellar uh, makes the EV scope, which is a brand new style and um, uh, of telescope that's just come out available to people to purchase um which is really amazing in itself Um, the way it works it's a very lightweight portable uh gps guided uh, telescope uh, works off a cell phone app and they have different programs that they put together that we kind of partner with nasa with and one of them is is what's called a well they do exoplanet transits Mm -hmm. we can all work with our telescopes uh, those across the country and the world to track um the exo the transit of planets around other stars And we can actually track that and measure the light as it dips down. And, you know, as it crosses the star, the light dips down and we can track all that. And they can print out a data sheet or chart for how that light is is, is affected. They also do the same thing with uh, asteroids. The asteroids, as they are flying around our solar system, will occasionally cross the path of a star. And that's called an occultation. And so as that asteroid passes in front of the star, the star's light dims. So what we're doing is we're capturing that moment when that asteroid crosses mm-hmm. the star. NASA provides the coordinates for the asteroids and the time frame at which that's going to happen. As it passes in front of the star, it's typically not more than three or four or five minutes, and then it's done. So that's how fast it takes to get. And, and
0: we're talking about asteroids mm-hmm. in our system, but oh, we're, yeah. we're using the distant background stars as the, as, stars, as the yes, measuring together. tool, basically. Yeah.
1: yeah. Background stars are the ones you see in the sky. Um, and uh, the telescope, uh, the asteroids are all, you know, in in close-in range. The particular project I work on re- recently with with NASA was called the Lucy project. Lucy project, which is already launched, is going to an asteroid field that is that that tracks the same orbit as Jupiter. Mm-hmm. It's in the same orbit as Jupiter. It's not in the asteroid belt. It's in Jupiter's orbit, which is farther out. And these asteroids were captured by Jupiter from the outer solar system at the beginning of the solar system's formation. So their composition and makeup is different than the ones in the asteroid Right. Belt.
0: Really primeval, so, right. Yeah, so yeah. they
1: really wanna know something about those. And the Lucy mission has been sent to basically fly by those asteroids one after the other after the other. Not gonna hang around, just gonna fly by them, take images, take some analysis and go. And what NASA, what we did with NASA was partner with them, uh, a number of us who have the scopes um, and who were who able to track it because it makes a very small shadow across the United States and across the, the continents um, because it's just a star, not like the moon. So it makes a small track. If it goes right over where you're living and you've got the telescope, put it out there and you can look up and you can track it. It's called, again, it's called an occultation. So I set the telescope up on there. Um, I set the uh, imaging timer for when they say to go. Uh, say, for example, it might be uh, 1030 at night and then at 1035, it's over. And so the image is captured. I send the data to Unistellar. The scientists Mm -hmm. there crunch the numbers and they bring back the video that shows the actual uh, transit of that um, star. You can see the star and then it dims out as the asteroid passes in front of it. And then it dims back and it comes back in again. Gotcha, yeah. That is called an occultation. And what they do, what NASA does is they use um, several of our um, our, um, occultation tracking uh, data and they try to get a, they get a, a information on the size and shape of the asteroid by because of the way it's passed in front of the star and block the light they can tell you know more about the shape and the size of the asteroid before they actually get there with the probe
0: That's amazing. Well I mean back home we have storm chasers that are tracking tornadoes and thunderstorms. you're basically doing the same thing. Tracking, yes, uh, yeah. tracking yeah. data, tracking and collecting data. Using yes. everybody, using the network of folks out there that are doing that, and uh, that's right. yeah, <clears throat> yep. that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, I, you know, Tim, when I we came across this document here, I, I knew um, I was kind of entranced here by Gene going back and forth. You know, he's he apologizes for being an artist and a writer speaking to scientists, but then he doesn't make an apology because mm-hmm. that's a those that's an overlap, and we see it dramatically in characters in Star Trek and across all fiction, Yeah. But I knew, I knew you were one of the people especially that embodied that. Um, well, because everybody who's an actor on Star Trek is an actor. Uh, yeah. But I knew you took the science to heart. And um, anyway, so did you, did you, what did you think? Uh, does this, I just love this because it's quintessential gene like you you knew when you took the role and then played tuvok uh yeah yeah i don't know final thought about this Uh, i mean because he was speaking at a time when we were still you know we still had the whole we're wasting money in space when we should be spending it here on our planet and in the in the decades since we've kind of won that oh look at all the technology spent your microwave oven your cell phone your gps is is space dollars Mm um yeah
1: and that's exactly what happens because everything that was designed, a lot of things that were designed for NASA all the way down to Velcro, <laughs> we're all now using and taking advantage of in the consumer world, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's still going to happen. That's not going to stop now. That's still going to happen. The technology that they've developed in the last 10 or 20 years is still going to be used in real time for all of us, you know, to the benefit of all of us. And and there you have it. I mean, Gene's, Gene is a writer, but he a but writer's imagine, um, Especially when you're talking about science fiction, they have to imagine it, they have to think out of the box. They have to think, we have to look into the future. Um, and sure enough, as we're, we're, as we're speaking, you know, Gene's creation of Star Trek, we are using cell phones that are just like communicators. We're able to speak to anyone, anywhere, um, with a cell phone. And now it, it looks just like it did when it was on the television show. We were, it was, it was, you couldn't imagine it at the time. It was like, wow, that's so cool. And here we are. Uh, you know, a uh, light alongside the Jetsons with video tele video phones. I mean, you know, here we are. So how far away is Gene from science? How far away
0: is he from the actual fact? Not too far. I know, and we're sitting here like we're in a briefing room uh, on a starship having our conversations every day now. Th- yes. And thank God to get through a pandemic with it. Yeah, that's yes, right. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, listen, Tim, this has been a delight. Thanks so much for, for jumping by today. And congratulations on being out there in the citizen astronomy army out there that's, that's helping, helping and helping defend because we've got stray asteroids we want to know about too. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's a great asteroid. Yeah. Crossing Earth yeah. orbits. Yeah, good yeah. to know. I'm glad <laughs> to know that Lieutenant Tuval, hopefully he's a captain by now out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is, uh, he's is, a
1: promotion. <laughs> is out
0: there, yeah. He's out there uh, looking out for us. So thanks so much, Tim, for coming by today. My pleasure. My pleasure. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available at Facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal forty seven. Yes, that's me, at larrynemachek.com. That's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files, swag and shirts at our T Public Shop too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit com.